is actually slow. It's 9.30, so we're going to start. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, as we pick up where we left off Wednesday evening. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19, we're in the middle uh, section of the chapter as uh, Paul is rejoicing. He has gratitude for the grace giving that the Philippian uh, saints had sent to him through their servant Epaphroditus. Interestingly enough, he's spoken of as an apostle. He calls him your apostle uh, Epaphroditus, who came with the funds and uh, then ministered with Paul for a period of time before Paul had sent him back. And so we'll be discussing this and uh, the details that are found here. What we're looking at this morning, though, really centers in on verses 11 and 12, and then introduces the famous, I can do all things through uh, him who strengthens me in verse 13. And so we're looking at circumstances. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And so we need to uh, break this down a bit and understand it for our own application. We want to learn the secret ourselves. We want to develop the contentment that the Father has provided for us in, uh, in the Christian walk. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing that we have this morning, the blessing we have to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you for the faithfulness of God the Holy Spirit, who, uh, Father, is the real teacher here this morning, not me. We thank you for the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so we look forward to feasting upon your truth this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, as we deal with the grace-giving gratitude, we uh, Started with point one, dealing with the mega rejoicing that's found there. I rejoice greatly, and uh, the uh, blessings that it is to rejoice and to rejoice more, to keep on rejoicing to the point that everyone else is invited to join with you in the rejoicing. And then specifically, the uh, the circumstances of the giving as it happened, because it had been a while. It had been a while and the giving was not happening. They had lost the opportunity to give. And it doesn't matter why. I mean, it could have been anything. It's, that's not really relevant. But for whatever reason, the, the church of Philippi had to stop giving and had, they had to stop supporting Paul and his missionary travels. And so the question then became, well, is this permanent? Is this forever? Is this ever going to start again? And they didn't think it could. And then when it did start up again uh, was the spark for uh, really this epistle the spark for uh, the rejoicing as we've been looking at it. And so I get down then to point two, which I think is that slide. There we are. Paul frames the financial spectrum as a context for contentment. Now you're going to see this expression a lot. I I speak about the personal financial spectrum. Uh, I can also speak about the personal health spectrum. 
and uh, other spectrums of things that we deal with. We're talking about daily life. And our human experience in daily life has a range that we experience at different times of our life. And so sometimes we're in a higher tax bracket and sometimes we're in a lower tax bracket. Sometimes the the income is greater and sometimes it's less. And God's still faithful every step along the way at every point of the spectrum. Likewise with our personal health. You know, there's seasons where we have it and seasons where we don't. You know, there's allergy seasons. There's other times a year that uh, that these things that we observe different places on the spectrum when it comes right down to it. And the point is, wherever you draw that spectrum, at whatever point God places you on that spectrum, that's where we have to learn the contentment. Because we have to submit to the will of God as far as where we are, why He's put us there, what it is He's teaching us at that place on the spectrum. So neither extreme on the spectrum. If you're the richest guy on planet earth, Bill Gates or whoever the richest guy is on planet earth, and if you're the poorest guy on planet earth, where not only are you at zero, you're underwater, you're below zero in, uh, in debt and things of that nature. Wherever you are in the financial spectrum, grace giving is still a privilege. Grace giving is still an opportunity. And uh, we want to understand this. Neither extreme on the spectrum makes contentment impossible when a believer walks by faith, ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. That's a big difference. See, unlike uh, the warning that comes about those silly women in, in Timothy, they're ever learning, and what happens? Never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And so learning is, uh, is not the end. It's actually you've got to reach the destination as you're learning. And uh, those women that are mentioned there in Timothy, uh, they're not reaching that destination. They continue to learn, but they're never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And that's, uh, that becomes its own snare at that point. And so when we're contrasting, when Paul comes through here and he's contrasting these things, the idea of deficiency on the one hand and abundance on the other hand, uh, he's actually teaching content that Jesus had taught. Our Lord had used the similar spectrum, the similar contrast in Mark 12 or Luke 21 when he'd highlighted the, the, the widow and the mite that she uh, the two coins that she had put in the, uh, in the temple. Jesus contrasted the need-want deficiency with abundance in his message about the widow's might, demonstrating that neither extreme on the personal financial spectrum makes grace giving impossible. I mean, she was dead broke. She was down to her last coins, the very uh, things that she was going to live on. And, uh, and yet she gave to the Lord. And, and Jesus said, that's the priority. That's the principle. And we trust, of course, that God is faithful, that she did eat that night, that she ate the next day, that, you know, that uh, he had grace provision ready to supply her need. And uh, we just don't have it recorded in the scripture what happened the day after that. So uh, we, we learn the principle and then we look forward to getting the rest of the story probably when we get to heaven and we, uh, we get to meet this lady. What a, uh, what a delight that's going to be. Likewise, Paul, he contrasted it on a local church basis in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, Paul contrasted this uh, deficiency spectrum with abundance in his exhortation regarding Macedonian grace. And uh, really we've been turning there and, and seeing some of these issues here related to this, 2 Corinthians 8.14, 2 Corinthians 9.12, showing that uh, rewardability comes through readiness, showing that the attitude must be uh, voluntary, can't be under compulsion because God loves the cheerful giver. I think the 2 Corinthians 8 passage is not only linguistically similar to Philippians 4, but it's actually quite close in time that he wrote these books very close together. 
And so that he writes Philippians, he's, writing, he's going to write Ephesians next, he's going to write, uh, and then he's going to depart from Ephesus and actually go to Macedonia and reach Philippi, and, uh, and then he's going to write 2 Corinthians. So uh, those things are, are very close together on that third missionary journey. Contentment. Now what we want to touch on here this morning, here's new material from, uh, we didn't quite get to this on Wednesday night. Let's understand that contentment does not alter the reality of the suffering need. You're still suffering need, all right? You just have divine viewpoint about it. It doesn't change the reality. Contentment does not alter the reality of suffering need, but it allows for our thinking, more than our thinking, our speaking, our acting, it allows for everything to not be driven by that need. You see when it says uh, in uh, not that I speak from want, in verse 11, not that I speak from want. That's the, that's the impact here. That's the, really the emphasis. What is it that's driving your speech? What is it that's driving your thinking? Are, are you allowing your circumstances of life to sit in the driver's seat of your soul? So where it controls, you know, whether you turn left or right or how fast you accelerate or brake or whatever you're doing, if you're putting your circumstance in the driver's seat, that's a problem. Are you speaking from want? Are you speaking from fear? Are you speaking from dissatisfaction? Whatever the case may be. If you've got a real spiritual struggle right now and so much so that you're absorbed in it, it actually is, does that become the origin of your language? The origin of your thought? Is that, is that the source of everything you think, say, and do? Well, that's a problem, all right? And so we want to learn that really what we think, say, and do should be coming from uh, the Word of God, should be coming from a transformed thinking based upon the fact that the Word of God is, is transforming us. And so we don't want it to come from, uh, from, from hurt. We don't want it to come from one of those places. In fact, what a great follow-up to, to Philippians 4.8 then where uh, the, whatever is right, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, you let your mind dwell on those things. Because if you're dwelling on the positive things, then a little thing like suffering need or uh, other uh, shortcomings, they're not going to drive uh, our conversation. They're not going to be the source for the things that we're talking about. And so uh, really this, this then becomes the main point. And I think we can illustrate it not only scripturally, but we can illustrate it as well through uh, testing and, and common experience, things that we come to, whereby um, folks that have been hurt, uh, they've been betrayed, betrayal is one of the worst tests, and you've been betrayed, and then because of that betrayal, it kind of leaves, a, it does some damage, it leaves a scar, it leaves a, uh, some ongoing concerns afterwards. And, and to the point then when if you really don't let the Word of God transform you and, and recover from that, it just eats away and eats away and eats away. And then you find you don't trust anybody because you've been betrayed. Or um, it, it impacts uh, maybe a, a, a past divorce, impacts a future relationship because you're just waiting for the, the next betrayal or you're just waiting for the next... And then what happens is you start speaking from that hurt. You start thinking from that hurt. And so the things you say, they're not coming from the Word of God. They're coming from the bad experience in the past. And if that's, if that's the issue, then that's got to get healed. That's got to get uh, dealt with from the Word of God. 
And so speaking from want, Paul says, I'm not doing that. Wouldn't want to do that. Not speaking from want. Not, uh, I don't want my thinking, my speaking, or my acting to come from uh, a place that it's not supposed to come from. All right. Even though the circumstances stay right where they are. (laughs) That doesn't change. It's my attitude changes pertaining to these things. All right. We also have, I think, not only here, but also 1 Timothy 6.6 becomes uh, an excellent text. 1 Timothy 6.6, the blessings of contentment. As he discusses it here, there's false teachers out there and other uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, and they, they like to uh, sneak into ministry, they like to take charge, they, uh, they find it quite profitable that they can uh, make money that way. Uh, these guys are talking about, uh, let's see, verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he has conceded and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. So right away you realize, yeah, these are, these are uh, wolves and false teachers. We don't want anything to do with them. Then verse 5, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And boy, do we encounter that, not only among false teachers and a prosperity gospel me- methodology, but even just um, in, uh, in just the manipulative fact, uh, ways in which they can use other people's desire for godliness to, to profit handsomely in, uh, in these ways. All right, Paul goes on to say, you know, godliness actually is a means of great gain. You know, they're, 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 they're wrong, of course, but in a way... They almost are right. Godliness is a means of great gain, eternal gain, profit for all eternity, especially when accompanied by contentment. And the real key is contentment, to keep us oriented uh, in divine viewpoint where we don't get off track and we don't get uh, wrapped up in in earthly things. When uh, accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world so we we can't take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And so we learn contentment. We learn the, the uh, grace procedures to appreciate from, from God what He's given us. Given us the, give us this day our daily bread. And day by day we have contentment with how faithful He is. And it goes on and talks about those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and uh, other aspects there. We'll, we'll uh, touch on that here shortly as well. Well, while I'm here, let me get down to verse 8 because this uh, is also part of the vocabulary. The, uh, I said while we're here and I flipped the page. <laughs> First Timothy 6, make sure I get down to, uh, yes, verse 8, if we have food and covering with these we shall be content. And that's our vocabulary that we're looking at in Second Corinthians, uh, or in uh, Philippians 4.11. All right, Second Corinthians 9.8 also speaks of contentment. God is able to make all grace abound to you. And this, this is the consequence of grace giving. This is when you are like-minded with the Lord in your giving, uh, not sparingly but bountifully because God's a bountiful giver Himself. And so uh, we want to be bountiful in the imitation of our Father. 
Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. When you're cheerful, when you're abundant, when you're bounding, when your attitude is correct, you don't suffer for that. The consequences are not going to, you're not going to hurt you by uh, obeying God's procedures. God will make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency, that's the term for contentment, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Everything He's designed you for. Full provision for every work of service in everything that He's designed you for. And that's the issue there. All right. So the vocabulary, what we're looking at here, it's, it's curious. It's a compound, out our case, is the term in Philippians. A-U-T-A-R-K-E-S, out our case. Which is really, it's a compound from a root verb, arkeo. I'll give that to you on the screen as well. Uh, in addition to out our case, uh, there's another noun, autarkeia. I guess out our case you could take as an adjective. And then autarkeia is a noun for contentment. A-U-T-A-R-K-E-I-A. Strong's number 842 for autarkes and 841 for autarkeia. Uh, the noun contentment is the noun that we have in 2 Corinthians 9.8, which we just looked at, as well as 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Uh, the adjective is uh, what we have in Philippians 4.11. Basically those the same words, the same root word. They're uh, simply cognate forms. One's an adjective, one's a noun. The verb itself, though, that, that uh, these expressions come from is arkeo, A-R-K-E-O, arkeo. And it has eight uses in the New Testament. And these, I think, are also worth, well worth looking at. And that's number 714 in the Strong's Concordance. And what this speaks to is sufficiency, okay? It really addresses sufficiency. And what God says is sufficient is sufficient. And what humans think is not sufficient is just pride, <laughs> arrogance, rebellion, a dissatisfaction with God's grace because God says He will supply all our needs. He says His grace is sufficient. And then we in our dissatisfaction disagree with God and say, no, we want more because, of course, we're Americans and we want bigger, better, more, right? That's just how we operate. And uh, failing to see that, of course, if, if sufficient is sufficient, then more than that is what? Too much. Yeah, it is uh, more than sufficient. In fact, it's the abundance that we should then take and be ready to share with others. And that's the, the blessings that we have in the body of Christ, having the abundance so to meet others' needs in, uh, in these ways. So, arkeo is the verb for this, to be sufficient, to be adequate, to be satisfied, to be content. And the idea, of course, we just read in Timothy, if we have food and covering with these, we should be content. This is our basic provision for daily life. And uh, God knows we need these things, and so there it is. The, um, I think the, the, the way the Lord uses this term and the way that it comes up uh, is helpful for us. Matthew 25, 9. This is an example of our cat. And you should probably be familiar with these. Matthew 25, 9. Remember the uh, parable of the ten virgins and there's five and five and five that uh, were, were prudent and had oil and then five that were foolish that uh, realized they uh, failed to prepare for this moment. And so their solution, of course, is we, uh, we failed to prepare ahead of time so now we're going to steal from you and, uh, and uh, this will provide for us. So the... Uh, 
the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there uh, will not be enough. There's not sufficient. No, it is, uh, we, we cannot arcao. Um, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And that's the, uh, that's the reality of it. Remember in the, in the manna procedures, they were to go out and they were to gather each one for their family's needs and there was sufficiency provided for all. No man had, uh, no man suffered whether he gathered a little or gathered a lot because he was gathering the, 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 the ratio for their, uh, for their household. And so, no, he said go to the dealer. So while they were going away, I'm not sure what kind of 24-hour Walmart they had back in those days, but uh, <laughs> whatever, this is the midnight hour, right? And so they, uh, they're, they're out there trying to find some kind of oil. And that's when the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. And so we have the parable there. Like I say, we're probably familiar with these. Luke chapter 3. And uh, I enjoy this text in uh, different ways. Um, here's uh, John the Baptist and he's ministering and he's preaching repentance. He's, a, he's the herald for the Christ and, and uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand and there is a population that's not ready for the kingdom. And, uh, and so they need to have a change of thinking. That's what repentance is about. And, uh, and then when the Pharisees come out, some of these guys, he says, why are you even here? I'm not warning you. And that's, uh, that's a curious aspect too. So uh, in verse 10, the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And likewise, he who has food is to do likewise. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Now this is curious to me because he doesn't say, Quit your jobs. Government service is not appropriate for believers. Uh, no, okay, it's not what he says. Or, uh, you know, avoid politics, don't vote, don't get involved in politics. That's not appropriate for believers. He, uh, he doesn't say that at all. Uh, they have the career that uh, he's put them in, and they're to, but they're to function biblically in that operation. So he says, uh, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. You know, quit using it illegally to line your own pockets and uh, accomplish what you're supposed to accomplish in a legal manner. Some soldiers also, what about us? What shall we do? And here too, he doesn't tell them, well, you know, a Christian shouldn't be a soldier. You're in an ungodly line of work and how dare you kind of a thing, you know. Um, I'm not sure what conscientious objectors do with this because he's talking to the soldiers saying it's okay to be a soldier. But, But don't be criminal about what you're doing. Be a biblical soldier. Uh, be godly in your testimony. So he says, uh, do not take money from anyone by force, which tends to be the brutal way that most third world dictators handle things and, and different aspects there. Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. You can make money that way too by giving the perjurous testimony in court and uh, they believe you because you're a police officer. And, uh, and so forth. And do not accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. And that's our, our keto verb that we're looking at today as it pertains to contentment. Say. Some of this stuff too, unless you travel 
Um, we're, we're so blessed and, and sheltered, I think, in, uh, in the United States. We have even those that aren't saved still are growing up in a culture where there's a Christian memory of a Judeo-Christian culture and so forth. But you travel to some other places around the world and it's just the bribes are everywhere. And it's just normal. And that's how, that's how you get places. That's how things are done. And, uh, and then the brutality, if you don't, is, uh, is also out there in different ways. Which is why uh, back in my army days as, as an MP, the 411th MP company was sent to Panama to teach the Panamanians uh, the difference between a military um, you know, a soldier function and a civilian function. They had no clue what a civilian law enforcement agency was. And so the MPs were sent down there to say, look, there's the military law, there's civilian law, and let's try to set up civilian law instead of a, a military junta kind of a thing. So anyway, that was didn't last very long. We were there three days, and then Saddam Hussein invaded, uh, invaded Kuwait, and so we got rerouted from Panama to Saudi Arabia and uh, ended up... Uh, I don't know what the Panamanians did after that, but we went to Saudi Arabia instead. All right, John chapter 6 and verse 7. Be content with your wages, as he told those soldiers there. John 6 and verse 7. Here's going to feed the 5,000, and there's crowds, and uh, he asked Philip, Jesus is so marvelous in the way that he teaches. He's got a, he already knows the answer, but he's asking Philip to get Philip's answer. He tells Philip, he says, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And that's a huge crowd. I mean, 5,000 men plus women plus children. And if you can't cater that meal for 200 denarii, that's, uh, that's an impressive feast. And uh, of course, Andrew then uh, is helpful bringing this kid in the sack lunch. <laughs> the lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? This then gives us the whole doctrine we need related to sufficiency. God is able to make all grace abound. And when we think we have inadequate resources, God, miraculously enough, says, no, wait a minute, this is sufficient. He's able to multiply the loaves and the fishes, maybe not in a glorious, miraculous way like he did on this event, but he still, I think, no less miraculously today, provides for Austin Bible Church, for example, even though we have uh, you know, modest means in our loaves and our fishes, God just multiplies it, absolutely multiplies it and provides and in very uh, amazing ways. So that we have the, uh, the passage there. So if you're looking at things in earthly terms, if you're looking around at stuff like a crowd of people and what it would cost to feed them all, if, you're, if, if all you can do like Philip is look at things in earthly terms, you're going to struggle to understand God's provision of sufficiency. See? Because God doesn't operate in earthly terms. John 14 and verse 8. This is the upper room discourse and he's preparing the disciples for the cross which would be the next day. And uh, Judas has departed to go fetch the soldiers and have Jesus arrested. And so while he's alone with these believers, he gives them this upper room discourse from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And so 
He talks about the Father here. And I love this promise of the rapture. He says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, which he's been doing now for 2,000 years, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. This is the rapture event that's being promised here. That where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. And so Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And this is where the sufficiency comes in because Philip then says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient. It is enough for us. All we need is just show us the Father, and we'll, uh, we'll believe the rest of what you're saying here. And of course, what's he been talking about for the last three and a half years? Everything Jesus did was a demonstration of the Father. Every message he gave, every miracle he performed, everything uh, our Savior was all about serving the Father in, in his ministry. So that's why Philip gets the rebuke that he gets there. But there can be a sufficiency in terms of, uh, I think this passage shows us a knowledge sufficiency whereby uh, you just want to know one more thing and then that'll be enough. And um, I'm dubious about that because I think uh, people that want to know just one more thing, Lord, uh, then after that they're going to want to know just one more thing, Lord, and then after that they're going to want to know just one more thing, Lord. And uh, then finally you get, you know, the Lord gets fed up and tells, uh, you know, Daniel said, that's enough. <laughs> no more questions. We're done. Anyway, that's, uh, that's a different message. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. More sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Probably the most well-known of all the passages that we're looking at here today. Because uh, Paul had been given the thorn in the flesh and he didn't like it. <laughs> and so the Father assigns it, and the Father's got a reason for assigning it, and Paul uh, recognizes that he's received it and d- doesn't like it, doesn't uh, think it's right, and so he asks three times for it to be taken from him. And uh, as we taught this um, back in the Second Corinthians series, hopefully if you were here for that, you'll remember this, but uh, he had his own personal rapture, he doesn't know if it was bodily or out of body, but whatever the case was, he got a tour of heaven on an occasion. And, uh, and then it says, uh, because of that, he was given the thorn in the flesh. Verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. So he knew the reason, and he still didn't like it. He knew the reason, and he still disagreed with God. And uh, a messenger or an angelos, an angel of Satan. And uh, normally a fallen angel can't indwell a believer. But if God in permissive will allows a fallen angel to afflict a believer, as in Job and the boils from, from his head to his feet, or uh, Paul here with a physical affliction, probably a facial disfigurement, probably an eye blindness, something with his eyes, but an angelos, an angel of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Imagine torments. 
you know, torments is a compartment of hell. It's a compartment of, 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 uh, of Sheol. And the idea of torment, uh, you know, this is literally a living hell. This is the idea that Paul is still on earth, but the torments are afflicting his, uh, his body. Bodily torments to keep me from exalting myself. And so concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So he knows better, he knows the purpose, and yet he's asking. And then the, he asks once and the answer is no. He asks a second time and the answer is no. Why do you keep asking when the answer is no? And he asks a third time. And he said to me, my grace, arkeo, my grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is always sufficient. It will never not be sufficient. Works will be insufficient. Merit is going to be insufficient, but not grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. If he doesn't endure this thorn in the flesh testing, he will never know the power that God has designed to to pour through him and through him for his good pleasure. Finally then, on the third time through, you know, (laughs) some people are slower learners. And, uh, you know, on the third time, I'm not boasting, I'd, I'd be five or six times before I finally figured something out, ten times. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. If, if this weakness is what it takes for the power to be manifest, well then bring it on. Bring on more weakness so we can uh, receive more power for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then he says, therefore, I am well content. And that's an even more intensive expression. I am well content. So in this whole process, while we're learning contentment, let's realize there's degrees of contentment as well. We want to be content. We want to be well content with everything God supplies in our Christian walk. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right. That takes uh, perspective. That takes Bible study. That takes a point of view that gets developed as the Word of God transforms our thinking. All right, and we've already read 1 Timothy 6, so we don't have to go back there. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. And uh, really... It's a closing body of admonishment that he gives after the, uh, the intensive uh, priesthood material. He says, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Can you imagine? <laughs> All right. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them as the, and uh, those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Remember, when one member suffers, we all suffer. It's not as if suffering is optional. And uh, if I heard a pastor, in fact, yesterday, bugged me, talking about how well some some believers suffer and other believers don't suffer. So wait a minute. If one member suffers, we all suffer. What do you mean? Who is this that doesn't suffer? If you're a part of the body of Christ, we all suffer, personally and corporately, in in the will of God for these different things. All right. And so, remember the prisoners. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. All of these, just a string of admonishments here at the closing of his epistle for, uh, for the recipients of Hebrews. Verse 5, 
make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Remember, that's the snare. The love of the money is root of all sorts of evil. So make sure your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. Are you lusting for more? Why are you not content with what you have? And if you're not content now, why do you think you're going to be content if you just have a little bit more? If you just have a little bit more. Say, the only thing keeping me from contentment is I just don't have enough. (laughs) That's the wrong perspective on contentment. If you're discontent now, that means your soul is maladjusted to doctrine. You're, You're maladjusted to the will of God. So having a little bit more, do you think that's going to help? All right. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So what he's provided is what he's provided, and he's faithful. And that's the uh, the issue there. Finally, 3 John 10. Don't get to 3 John very often. 3 John, verse 10. It's a different kind of contentment. (laughs) All right. Uh, Verse 9 introduces Diotrephes. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, you see that? This is a different kind of satisfaction or dissatisfaction. So he's uh, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. <laughs> what, a, what a character. All right. And, and so when you have uh, these folks walking in darkness that uh, they're doing their, their wickedness, they're not even going to be content with the wickedness that they are doing. They want to do even more. And uh, they want to not only, uh, they want to limit others. Uh, as he doesn't even want the Word of God to be taught. Doesn't want faithful men coming in. And uh, man, so that's a whole different aspect there. Just seems to me the whole realm of content versus discontent, the whole realm really falls under the, the, the fundamental issue in the angelic conflict. I mean, it comes right down to the fact Satan rebelled, and now we're dealing with it. <laughs> Satan rebelled and, and everything else is here we are. And how God is providing for that. He's providing for the, the reconciliation to that in the angelic realm, in the human realm, in all things. And Satan rebelled fundamentally because he was not content. The five I wills. He's not content with his throne or where he is or his glory or all those other things. Read through Isaiah 14, the five I wills of Satan, and see there's no contentment in any of that. And then our Savior, completely content to lay aside His privileges, to come to earth, to trust His Father, completely content to rely upon His Father through His entire earthly ministry. And uh, we have the core issue of the angelic conflict right here in this uh, doctrine we're studying today called contentment. All right, back to Philippians then. I want to notice some details on this. So not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content. I have learned to be content. Um, hmm. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come intuitively. It doesn't come, uh, you don't get saved 
And then mystically 30 minutes after that, God just pours contentment into you and you become content for the rest of your life. No, you have to learn this. It's not automatic. And there's a process between learning and knowing and discovering the secret. So we have three separate verbs in a chain. And this, uh, this I think is curious to me. All right, so point D, Paul employs a remarkable progression from learning to oida, knowing, to discovering the secret, learning the secret, being um, initiated into the, uh, the secret. We'll discuss that. Because that's really, it's, it's uh, staggering what, uh, what he hints at there in, in verse 12. So in verse 11, he talks about learning. That's the first step. And then he talks about knowing. So you can't be ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You have to learn and you have to know the full knowledge of oida, knowing how. And then learning the secret in 12b. So that's the progression. And it comes in those stages. The sequence of this is not accidental. For I have learned. Completed action, present tense uh, consequences. I have learned that's uh, verse 11. I presently know how, that's verse 12, and then I have learned the secret. I have been ushered into the secret. So let's break these down. And we like the first one. This is what we do around here. We are a Bible church, so we learn. <laughs> All right? We are disciples. We're called to be disciples. We're called to make disciples. And so that's what learning is. Manthano is the verb. Methetes is the noun. Learning is the activity of a disciple. We're here to learn. And we never stop learning. If we think we're done, if we think we've learned it all, then we haven't learned anything. We, I mean, what have we really learned? And so we keep on learning. And uh, so this, we won't spend a ton of time on this because I think we're solid on this and we've, we've been doing this for a long time. But the idea of manthano, M-A-N-T-H-A-N-O, is the verb to learn. Different from the, the verb to teach, by the way. And that's uh, didasco. You ever consider that? How simple it would be just to use teaching in the active voice and being taught in the passive voice so that we come together in church and the, the pastor gets up there and he didascos in the active voice. That's teaching. And then the people sit there and they just they didasco in the passive voice. They get taught, right? But the Bible never does that. It never presents it that way. It presents it that the teacher is actively teaching and the learners are actively learning. See? Active voice in both cases. The active teaching and the active learning. And that's, uh, I like that. A mathetes is a disciple. Uh, We want to recognize that not all Christians are disciples. Not all saved, born again uh, brothers and sisters in Christ are disciples. It's not a synonym with being saved. It's not a synonym with being a Christian. It's not a synonym uh, in the sense that, well, you know, so I'm a Christian, that means I'm a disciple of Jesus, and these uh, Muslims over here, they're disciples of of Muhammad, and these uh, Buddhists over here, they're disciples of of Gautama or whatever. Um, we We don't want to be sloppy with the terms, and I think that happens. I think in, in usage that happens when, when Satan wants to kind of blur the issues and just make it, make it a watered-down thing where there's 
pluralism and multiple paths to get to wherever. A disciple is not just simply a, a fan or a team member, okay? You know, um, we are a learner. That's fundamentally what it is, a learner. Somebody that is actively learning continuously. And that's what John 8.31 spotlights. If you're not familiar with this, I think John 8.31 destroys every discipleship shelf at Lifeway Christian Bookstore. <laughs> okay, because pop trendy books that are out there, they teach discipleship with a definition that's not found in the Bible. Okay? And I prefer to stick with what the Bible teaches discipleship is. Discipleship. When If the Great Commission says make disciples, I better know what that means. I better know how to make a disciple. And then if I want to be a disciple, this is... Uh, this is the expression here. Okay? And sadly, I think um, it just basically becomes a, uh, in usage, discipleship today by and large speaks to coaching, speaks to uh, older brothers just you know, coaching a younger brother, older sisters coaching a younger sister. It, it comes down to um, encouraging one another in the Word of God. And, and those are all great things. They're excellent things and they should happen in the local church. But they're not discipleship. To make a disciple is to, is to take something that's not a disciple and turn it into a disciple. Okay? It's a transitive concept whereby somebody who's not a disciple, you make them one. And then once they are one, it stops. If they're already a disciple, how do you make them a, a disciple? They already are a disciple. So now that they are a disciple, now they can engage in other Christian activities in the local church. But the idea, if, if uh, well, let me I'll read these verses and then I'll explain some more. John eight thirty one. recognizing that in this chapter he gives the light of the world message and there are some who respond. And uh, those who respond become, uh, are the ones that he addresses in verse 31. So when he's giving the, the light of the world message, we see in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. You have that there? Many come to believe in Him. And that's what it says, and that's what it is, and that's what it means. And um, <laughs> I had a PhD guy tell me, I know it doesn't mean that. Said, well, wait a minute. That's what it says. And so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, well, they're not really saved. Excuse me? Jesus thought they were, and He started telling them about it. So He says, if you continue in My Word then you are truly disciples of mine. See, that's the key. He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants you to not only be a believer, but to be a disciple. To be a believer, but then to live in the Word of God. To abide, remain, dwell in the Word of God. Meno means to remain, to abide, to dwell. It's not a short visit. So to dwell in the Word of God, if you dwell in my Word, you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, the Christians that are saved that aren't disciples, they don't have the freedom of the Christian walk like they should have. See, they're still struggling with sin. They're still struggling with bondage because they're not abiding in the Word of God. They're not being transformed in the spirit of their mind. All right. So this is what it means to be a disciple to be living in the Word of God. So if you're going to make a disciple, if the Great Commission tells you to make a disciple, 
Who are you looking at? You should be looking at non-disciples. You should be looking at folks that aren't living in the Word of God.